I think the strongest emotion out there, at least for me, I mean, I think joy and sadness, and I, I love to laugh. If you're around me long enough, you know that I, I'm cracking some joke about something somewhere. But there's, there's a power to, to discouragement that, that overarches any of them. When I was uh, in training to be a teacher, that was what my trade was uh, before I did this whole other thing, the teaching thing didn't work out. Anyway, um, <laughs> just kidding. The, they said that you needed to, incur, when you said something really discouraging to somebody, not just, you know, not a truth statement, but maybe like a, a, a kid gets a, 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 another kid teases them or something or whatever. It, they, the research says that it takes 10 encouraging, truthful statements about that to undo the power of that one negative uh, statement of discouragement. So this week I thought, you know, I'll just do a little, I'll just do a little web search and find it, see if I could find some things that would encourage you. And so I just went to Google and I typed up, someone encourage me please. And, and I got a few posters that came up and, and here they are. First one. <laughs> it says ambition, the journey of a thousand miles sometimes ends very, very badly. Next one, uh, apropos for the uh, Olympics, failure, when your best just isn't good enough. <laughs> Another one Olympics-based, it says defeat, Oop, one. defeat, for every winner there are dozens of losers, odds are you're one of them. <laughs> Next one, um, yeah, agony, not all pain is gain. And the last one is my favorite, actually. Uh, mistakes. It could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. <laughs> That's classic. That's me, man. <laughs> Seriously, the, the power of discouragement is, is amazing. I, I tell you, just yesterday, just yesterday, I was told, I, I, was, I told Carol, I said, I'm going to go out back. And I'm going to work on this car. She broke her car. I don't know what she was doing, but she, she broke the water pump. And so I, I look at it, uh, you know, in typical guy fashion, I look at it and go, that's easy. I can do that. So this is water pump hanging right there. No big deal. So I go out there and I start pulling off the bolts. And I realize there are two bolts that are designed from, you know, the engineer from hell. So they're underneath this this bracket that holds the, the, the engine mount together. I mean, what are you thinking? You can't get to there without moving the engine mount. You have to, literally, the engine, those of you who don't know, that holds the engine up. And I'm thinking, I, I stared at it for about 10 minutes, just staring at it, thinking, if I think really hard, maybe they'll just unloosen or, or, or something. I, and I just stared at it, and I didn't know what to do. I thought, I don't know how to take an engine mount out. I have no idea. So I picked up the phone, and I called Neil. And I said, Neil, I'm really bumming here. <laughs> i got to move an engine mount. And Neil said, I will be over there. Still got the grease in my hands here. Neil said, I'll be over there. And he helped me take out that engine mount, which I like what he says about that. Neil says, I don't really know what I'm doing. I just have the guts to try. And since it's my wife's car, I figured, sure, go ahead, you know? <laughs> that blessed me. What well, would have been a eight, uh, that car still would have been laying in pieces. He came over and in a couple hours had figured out 
how to get that engine mount out of there. That blessed me. That was an amazing blessing when I was really bummed out. Some of you are laughing because you've been there. You know what I'm talking about. This morning we're going to meet someone who blessed someone, who encouraged someone at a critical point in their life, so much so that if this person didn't step in, it could very well be that your New Testament would be very thin. If this guy doesn't step in, Saul may never have become Paul, and he may never have written the New Testament, the, the many of the books, the 13 of the New Testament books that he wrote. So if you want to open your Bibles, we're going to continue on looking what happens to the Apostle Paul, which he's still by the name of Saul here. We've been going through a study called The Church on Fire, going through the book of Acts. We've been in it through, since last October. We'll probably be in it until probably next October. Who knows when we're going to be done. We're in chapter 9 now. And I want to kind of catch up to speed what has happened. You remember Saul was, if you have your Bible open, that's great. If you look at chapter 8, Saul is there when Stephen gets stoned. They kill this guy, this early follower of Christ named Stephen. They kill him. And it says in chapter 8, verse 1, it says that Saul was there giving approval to his death. And then it's a great persecution broke out. If you look at chapter, verse 3, these aren't on the screen yet. You just kind of follow along in your Bible if you have one, but just listen up. Acts 8, verse 3, it says, But then Saul began to destroy the church. And it says, he going, going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Saul hated the church. Saul hated Christians. He saw it as a wart on Israel's uh, back. And so he, he just saw that it was horrible, and he wanted to do whatever he could to destroy it. And he started to. And if you look over in chapter 9, then it says in verse 1, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So what he wants to do is he wants to start going to other cities. After he's done with the ones in Jerusalem, he's went from house to house there. The Christians all scattered all over the place. Now, now he wants to make this 150-mile journey to Damascus to start to trash the Christians there. Well, on the way, something happens. He has a life-altering encounter with Jesus. If you skip down to verse 4, here's a voice, and it says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. He met Christ face to face right there on the road to Damascus. When he's going to Damascus to trash the church, Jesus steps in. He says, why are you persecuting me? Then comes this guy by the name of Ananias. And Ananias is told, by Jesus, in a vision, he says, go to this guy named Saul and, and lay your hands on him. And Ananias is thinking, uh, you know who you're talking about here? This is Saul. This is the guy who's coming here to, 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 to ruin the church. Do you know what you're talking about? And Jesus says, yes, I know exactly what I'm talking about. I will show him how much he must suffer in verse 16 for my name. He is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. And so Ananias goes. No questions asked. He comes in there and the first words he says to Saul, this guy who came to kill him, he lays hands on him and he says, Brother Saul. Isn't that great? Brother Saul. And all of a sudden, Saul is changed. 
Something like scale falls off his eyes. He receives the Holy Spirit. He's a changed person from the inside out. And if you look in, in uh, the end of that section, and he got up, he was baptized. After taking some food, he regained his strength. Okay, we're going to pick it up right there in verse 19, the second half of it. It says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Stop there for a second. Isn't that a little bit ironic? If you, if you had a Bible in front of you or you heard it, maybe you saw the irony. He goes back to the synagogues, and that's the very place where he asked permission from the high priest. Can I go to the synagogues and go in there and find people who are teaching about Jesus? Can I get them and take them back? And he is now going right there to the synagogues to do that. The synagogues were houses of worship for Jewish people all over, spread all over the place. Verse 21. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who caused havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. That's the passage Hamlet spoke about last week. He became more and more proficient in, in looking at the Old Testament prophecies and all the things that were said about the coming of Christ to prove that here he is. Here is Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. The guy who is the arch enemy of Christianity now is proving that he is. Look at verse 23. After many days had gone by, we're going to see how long that is in just a little bit. Many days go by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Okay, he's in the city of Damascus. And the Jews there decide, we're going to kill him. That's a logical thing because that's what Paul was going to do. So now, somebody who took Paul's place says, I'm going to kill him. Or excuse me, Saul's place is not named Paul yet. Going to kill him. But they kept close watch and they lowered him in a basket and out he escaped, out through the opening in the wall. Now, the interesting thing is, if you do a little research, uh, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is speaking about this. One of the letters that Paul wrote later, 2 Corinthians 11.32, he says, In Damascus, the governor under King Artis had the city of Damascus guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from a window on the wall and slipped through his hands. Now, the, the king there is not a Jewish king. The king there is an, is an Arab king. So that's not talked about in the book of Acts. So you've got the Jewish people trying to kill him, and you've got the kings guarding, guarding the city. So you've got double trouble for Paul. If you look in, in Galatians, where Paul's also speaking about this period of time in his life, he talks about how long it was. In verse, chapter 1, verse 30 says, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond my Jews, beyond many Jews of my own age, and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia. So that's not talked about in Acts either. But Paul was in Damascus and he went into Arabia. And then it says, and later returned to Damascus. Then, 
after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. Three years. Three years is how long Paul has been in Damascus. So many days, you know, many years are passing here in the book of Acts. Three years he's been causing trouble before they decide that's it. We're going to kill him. They have a lookout for him. Three years are taking place. And he's going to go to Jerusalem. Look at, look, go back to Acts chapter 9 and look at verse 26 now. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. Now, I know you've heard that Christ had 12 disciples, and that's true, but disciple means here follower of Christ. So there's just all these Jerusalem Christians who are followers of Jesus. It doesn't mean the 12 apostles, because we're going to see the distinction in that in just a minute. So all these followers of Jesus who maybe had been persecuted by Saul or had been somebody they know was persecuted by Saul, when he comes back after three years, they're afraid of him. Can you imagine that though? I mean, this is his home, this is his home turf, Jerusalem. He wasn't, he wasn't raised here, but this has become his home. And he finally comes back three years later and the first people he goes to, because he can't go back to his Jewish buddies because they'll kill him, he goes to the Christians and what the thing, they're afraid of him. They, they think, you know, this guy Paul, Saul still, he's pretty smart. I mean, what better way to infiltrate than to pretend to be one of us? So just pretend to be one of us, come in, and just ruin the organization from the inside out. It almost ended right there for Paul. It, there almost was no 13 books of the New Testament. Verse 27. But... By the way, you should, it'd be a great study someday just to do a Bible study of the buts in Scripture. It, I'm serious. There are some... I was going to say, yeah. There's some amazing... There's some... There's, yeah, they... The, they're, yeah, whatever. <laughs> the, the buts are interesting in the Bible, I guess, so. Um, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Paul was out of luck. He wasn't going to be welcomed by his Jewish friends, and he was certainly not going to be welcomed by these Christians who thought he was there to infiltrate. And here it says, but Barnabas actively did two things. He took him and he brought him to the apostles. That's the first, that's, this is not the first time we've met Barnabas. Remember in Acts chapter 4? If you remember, they're sharing their possessions. And one of those people that did it was Barnabas. It says, there were no needy persons among them. That means the whole church. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Isn't that cool? Sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So we just get this guy interjected in Acts chapter 4 and he doesn't come up again. He's not important until Acts chapter 9. But he is big time important. He took Saul and brought him to the apostles, and then if you pick it up in second part of verse 27, it says, he told them 
how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Saul was sitting there with a water pump that he could not get the last two bolts out of. And Barnabas said, I'll take care of that for you. I'll take you over and I'll vouch for you. Now, that's risky. That's what I'd call risky kindness. Risky encouragement. Why is it risky? Barnabas wasn't there. He didn't see this happen. He only has the account of what happened in Damascus. He didn't see it happen. So he's taking Paul's word too. It's risky encouragement. He steps out and he lifts up Paul at a point where it all could have been over. Now if you look what happens as the result of that, if you, I, I, I wanted to read from Galatians chapter 1 through verses 19. I wanted to save the last little bit there, starting in verse 18. From Galatians 1, Paul later is recounting what happened when he comes to Jerusalem. He says, Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. Now what's not inserted right in the white space between the, the, uh, the words get to Jerusalem, or excuse me, went to, to Jerusalem, white space, or on the screen there, black space, is, and Barnabas saved me, and Barnabas made, made the day, and I got acquainted with Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. Now, that phrase there, to get acquainted with, literally it's the word for history. In other words, they shared history. They, they did life together for 15 days. They shared their, their intimacies. They, they shared life. They shared their ministries. What was going on, what God was doing here in Jerusalem, what God was doing in Damascus through Saul. And he stays with them 15 days. And he also saw one other apostle, James, the Lord's brother, it says in, in verse 19. And it's sweet. That's the result of one guy. One guy saying, no, I think God is moving in this guy's life and I'm going to encourage him and I'm going to vouch for him. I'm going to stand up for him. One work of encouragement changed the course of Christian history. That's it, right there. It's all pinnacle. Verse 29, then they decided to get rid of him too. The Gratian Jews, he talked and debated with the Gratian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And finally the church is at peace in the last verse Verse 31, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Now, Barnabases are important people. As I thought through the last uh, 20 some years of my life, I can think of three points in my spiritual journey where I would have altered course had it not been for three people. The first one is a man by the name of Tom Larson. The day that I made a commitment to Christ, it was in the morning. It was 6.30. I was in the shower. Felt like I was going to throw up. And I said, take me, Lord, I'm yours. That later that day, I remember thinking, I don't know about this. This is kind of nutty. I don't think I want to do this. I think I have reservations. Later that evening, around 4 or 5 o'clock at night, Tom Larson, who was a friend of mine, a Christian friend of mine, knocked on my door. 
and talk to me about what it meant to be a follower of Christ and that he would help me along the way. And he would help me along the way. Wow. Talk about a guy with a water pump that can't get the two last bolts out and needed somebody to help him. Tom said, and for three years, this guy and I met on a weekly basis and he helped me along. Tom and I are about as different as night and day. And he, yeah, to this day, I don't make a major decision in my life without talking to Tom. Tom has been very influential in my life. In fact, he's even now my kid's gym teacher where they go to school. So I get to see him a lot and hear great things about my kids. <laughs> uh, no. In 1994, I got kind of a real strong uh, feeling from the Lord that, that he would have me be the startup person for a new church, this church right here, Hope Community Church. And about the time when it started going in late 95 and early 96, when I was working with different church boards and working with denominations and all those things, whoa, was it discouraging. I mean, just discouraging. I was told by one person to, you know what, just forget the campus. Let the, let the parachurch groups, the church has no place on the campus. Uh, this was a denominational person, and I just thought, what? I mean, the church doesn't care about college students or anyone of that age anymore? What, what's going on here? And I remember being in other meetings where it just was very discouraging. You'll never get funded, they said at Hope. You'll never have enough money. That, of course, is true. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but they say you'll be out of business in six months. You know, you'll, you'll, have to work, you'll have to work another job. I've never had to work another job. We have... Many uh, full-time staff now. We have multiple things going on. We're still running on a shoestring budget, but just a lot of problems, and it was just a lot of discouragement. I remember I was in one of my last, last days over at Bethel Seminary to finish up my degree, and I sat down with my lunch, and I was pondering this stuff, and I was really depressed about it, actually. I was thinking, God, maybe you're not in this. And the new dean of the uh, seminary, his name is uh, Leland Eliason, Leland, is that his first name? Yeah. Leland um, sat down next to me. And he said, hi, my name is Leland. I'm the, the uh, new dean here. And I said, yeah, I, I know your son, actually. He was in one of my Bible studies, and I got to know him. And, oh, we chatted a little bit. And he says, well, what are you going to do now that you're going to graduate? And I, I told him about my dream of starting a church. Told him about a dream that would be a place where people from all back backgrounds could come to, especially people who had no church background, could come in and Christ would make sense. And I stopped talking, and he sat there in silence for about 10 seconds, and I thought, I know what he's going to say. He's going to say, you'll never be funded. Uh, why are you at the college? You know, leave it to Navigators Campus Crusade, yada, yada, yada. He just looked at me and stared, stopped eating for like 10 seconds quiet, and then he said, you are a man after my own heart. I can't tell you what that meant. It's the first person who was really excited about this because just Stan Oster and I at that time, our wives weren't even on board. <clears throat> <laughs> and he said, you are a man after my own heart. You want to reach people who don't have anything to do with the church, and I love that. Third man in my life who has really been a Barnabas for me is after we got this church going, um, you realize you think you know what you're doing, and then you start, and then you realize, I don't have a clue what I'm doing. Tom and I stopped meeting on a regular basis in, in 1986, 
And I had been praying Jeremiah 3.15 from that time. I wanted another person in my life. I wanted someone older who had seen life. And, and I wanted them to mentor me, but I want them older. Maybe it had kids already and, and that type of thing. Jeremiah 3.15 says, Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. And I've been praying that. God, that's what I want. I want someone to enter in my life. I don't care if it's a formal relationship or not. And in, in, in 1994, at a men's retreat, I heard a speaker. His name was Rob Boyd. And he was the main speaker at this men's retreat. I'll never forget what he said one time. He was starting a session, and he was really vulnerable with us. And he said, you know, if, if you take all the layers of the onion and you get down to where basically who I really am, the very core of who I am, it would be a frightened timid little boy. When he said those words, in 1994, that's what I was going through. I was really going through some hard times. When he said the words, frightened, timid little boy, at the beginning of his hour-long talk, I lost it. I couldn't contain my tears, because that's what I felt like I was going through. And so I sat there for an hour, go, <clears throat> went back to my room, and bawled my eyes out. I came up to him two years later and I said, Rob, I, uh, we've never met, but I just want to let you know that that phrase that you said that day had a major impact in me. That was really a healing time for me to cry out like that and to cry out to God and to let some of those fears and anxieties go. And he looked at me in 1996 when I, when I first had this conversation. He says, we have to go out for pie. You look like someone I want to get to know. I said, as long as you're buying, sounds good. <laughs> Since then, Rob Boyd has been my mentor. We meet on about a monthly basis. Rob is a blessing. He is a Barnabas. He's an encourager. He's about 70 now. When we meet, he grabs my cheeks. Hi, how are you? No one else can grab my cheeks. You try to touch my cheeks, I'll punch you. <laughs> Rob can grab my cheeks. When we meet, when, 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 I, when I come into a room and there's all these other pastors and everything, he'll, he'll see, come here, come here, come here. He'll bring me over and he'll say, this is my friend Steve. I want you to meet so-and-so. Folks, I don't know if you realize how powerful that is. Because the world is doing whatever they can to take a hammer and bust you upside the head. Constantly. I don't think you realize how important it is one act of kindness. One act is to say, you know what? I know life's been hard for you, but I'm for you. I'm with you. I know what you're thinking right now as we close. You're thinking, who's that in my life? I got a challenge for you. What if Barnabas thought that? What if he's thinking, man, is it difficult being a Christian in the first century? Wish I was a Christian in the 20th century. They have nice buildings and automated fans and everything. Wish somebody would encourage me. He didn't think that. He said, how am I going to bless this other guy? I have a challenge for you. We're going to sing a couple last songs. I want you to pray during those last songs. Who this next week can I Barnabas? I'm making it a verb. How's that for making new words, Tim? Who are you Barnabasing? <laughs> I may ask you, who this week, who is God putting it on your heart to say, you know what, I believe in you. You can go, girl. Who's, who are you going to do that for? You can change the course of history. Let's pray.
Lord, I praise you for so many people that have worked in this guy's heart and life over the last 20-some years, helping me to be more of a follower of you. And some, like uh, Dina, uh, the dean of the seminary, and just in one 20-minute lunch together, changed me. And other times it's been people like Tom and Rob who've poured years of their life into me. And God, there are so many other people in this room who've been a blessing to me and encouragement to me. Oh God, would you make us like Barnabas? Would you make us people who just get underneath people no matter where they are, especially if they're in the muck? We wouldn't just stare at them and say, boy, you're in the muck. But we'd help them. We'd lift them out, God. Make us Barnabases. Make us people who take risky acts of kindness to step out in faith and to change people's lives as we do that. God, help us to be like that, that enter into other people. Even when it's not popular, I'm sure it wasn't popular when everybody else was against Saul and Barnabas stepped in. God, would you do that? Even this week, would you, would you, Spirit, would you speak to us even this week and who we could bless, who we could encourage, whether it's a one-time deal or whether we commit years of our life, God, to encourage. Make us like that, Holy Spirit. Fashion us. Let's pray these things in Christ's name.